Welcome to the Constructionist Podcast, hosted by Caleb. Just as we grow gardens and build buildings, God is building you through the renewing of your mind. The sufficiency of the scriptures is paramount in your journey, and every week, Caleb will challenge you to make them a central part of your life and worldview. Join us now as we explore the world through the ancient lens of God's Word. When you consider the events of the second coming, or the things that prelude Jesus' return, the one of the best places to start is Matthew 24 and the corresponding chapters in Matthew, or sorry, in Mark and Luke. So Matthew 24 is often called the Sermon on the, not the Sermon on the Mount, it's called the Olivet Discourse. The Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Olivet Discourse is in Matthew 24 and 25. And there you discover that Jesus gives a huge amount of fascinating bits of insight into the times in which he will return. So let's just jump into it and actually read what it says in Matthew 24. If you start with verse 1, it says that Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So what they're looking at is what scholars call the Herodian temple or the second temple. So Solomon was commissioned by his dad, David, to build a temple for the Lord. So Solomon did that, and then over time, the uh, purity of the worship of the Lord sort of declined, and then the law was lost, and it had to be rediscovered later under Josiah. But then over time, it kind of faded away rather quickly again, and then you had the Babylonian invasion, and then the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. So then there was a long period of time where there was no temple, and you had the return of the exiles from Babylon in Ezra and Nehemiah, and also in Haggai and Zechariah, and then they rebuild the temple. But they don't rebuild it anywhere close to the glory that it had before when Solomon had built it. So that temple lasted for hundreds of years as well, and this is what's referred to as the second temple period. And so you'll often, uh, if you pick up any sort of books on ancient Israel, or uh, there's a very distinct time period referred to as the second temple period. And that's basically from the days of Ezra and Nehemiah to the 70 AD when the temple was destroyed again by the Romans. So Jesus now appears on the scene at the tail end of that. I mean, we're talking like 30, 40 years before the destruction of the temple under the Romans. And what has happened in the meantime was that Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah, they pushed for the rebuilding of the temple, which was good and right. And then it wasn't until Herod, King Herod came along, and he was the Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus in Bethlehem. He was a big builder. He loved architecture. He loved having big, important buildings. He loved having, like, status symbols, really. And he built a lot of stuff all around uh, the land of Israel. And one of the things he did was to try to woo himself in with the Jews, particularly the, the leadership of the Jews, the priesthood in that, was to really expand the temple complex. And it wasn't even in Jesus' day finished. It was getting close, but it wasn't actually fully completed yet. And so this 
was apparently a stunning, stunning temple complex. And it was something that from the Mount of Olives, which you can sit on and look back across to Jerusalem and see the skyscape of Jerusalem. You can still do this today. And it would have been just this amazing, magnificent display of architecture and, and the temple and all that kind of stuff that went along with it. And so the, the disciples are admiring this, you know, just like you would, I remember standing in a, in a, elevate, a, a multi-level car park, parking garage, looking out at New York City. And I can remember flying across the country, across America, and we flew over Lake Michigan, and I can see, look down and see Chicago and this amazing cityscape that is Chicago. And I've come out of the Rocky Mountains at night and dropped down into Denver, and it was just this, at nighttime, this huge spread of glowing lights. I've seen amazing cityscapes. So, I, you, you know, imagine you doing the same thing. You get that. You get this sort of sense of, wow, look at what has been accomplished here. Jesus doesn't look at it like that at all. What Jesus says is, you see all these buildings. Well, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So imagine looking out over the cityscape of New York or looking out over Cape Town as you're on top of Table Mountain. And I've done that too. I've looked down on, on Cape Town from Table Mountain. And you just go, wow, look at this amazing spread out in front of me. And then someone walks up to you and says, all of this is going to be wiped out. All of this is going to be destroyed. And there's a sense inside of you that goes, oh, wow. But imagine the disciples hearing that. And from their perspective, it's, what? What do you mean? This is God's temple. This is where we come to worship him. This is the center, the, epi- the very center of all of our worship to God happens right here in this temple. And Jesus says it's going to be destroyed. Now, think about it from Jesus' perspective. He knows the corruption of this temple. In the previous chapter of Matthew 23, he gives this amazing diatribe against the Pharisees and against the priests, well, more the Pharisees um, and the scribes. But the the religious elite, the ones who claimed that they understood the law and that they knew what God's word was all about, and it was them that should dictate to people how to live and make God happy, and he just reams them, you know, calls them hypocrites and all sorts of terrible things and points out all the stuff they're doing that's stupid. And then you turn around in Matthew 24, and the disciples are elevating this glory of a temple that was made by human hands and, and paid for and spearheaded by Herod, which none of the Jews liked anyway, except for a small minority. And Jesus says it's all going to get wiped out. So the heart attitude that he was attacking in chapter 23, he turns around and applies that same mindset, that same judgment from an eternal perspective to the buildings of the temple and says they're going to come down as well. And so this is a challenge to us. Do you know how many buildings there are in America that are, quote, dedicated to God? There are hundreds of thousands of buildings that are called churches, which isn't even the correct designation for them, because in the New Testament, the the word church, ecclesia, is never applied to a building. It's only ever applied to a people that say that we are called out to follow God. We are called out of... 
the world, we're called out of the society to stand for something different. And what we're standing for is the plans and purposes and mind and heart of God. That's what the church is. The, a, a building is just a building. The temple was just a structure that had rocks on it and built with stones and made to look really pretty. And in our human eye, we go, ooh, isn't that beautiful? I'm an electrician. I've built lots of buildings. I've been in a lot of really nice people's houses and places like that. And there's a sense where it's like, all this is going to get wiped away. It's all going to be gone someday. Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is coming back. And when the time is right, God will literally melt the very elements of creation and reform everything into a new heaven and a new earth. So everything that I put my time and effort and energy into on a daily basis to get electricity and lights and power to buildings and stuff, it's all going to be gone. And I have to hold that very carefully and make sure that I understand that my worth is not in what I'm doing, but in what God has called me to do. And so the same is true of this temple, and the same is true of even this very morning, this today's Sunday. Uh, if you sat in a building to be part of the people of God, you're not in a church. You are gathering with a church, with a called out people. The building itself can be burned to the ground and come to nothing, but you as a people can still carry on and, and do the things that the Lord has called you to do. So there's a very uh, serious mindset of simplicity that we must have about our faith and about how we live out our faith. And we need to have the same mind that Christ had. Have the mind of Christ is what Paul says. So he says, you see all these things. I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Matthew 24 and 25 are good chunks of chapters, so we're not going to deal with every aspect of it, but everything I just said before is a prelude to what I'm going to repeat from what Jesus is saying right now. Jesus says right now, see that no one leads you astray or even harder language in the New King James, take heed that no one deceive you. I will say it again. Take heed that no one will deceive you. So they say to him, when will these things be, this destruction, this casting down of the temple of this amazing building, when is that going to happen? What are going to be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? So there's still this uh, fuzziness in their mind. Jesus is sitting right there and they're asking him, when will be the sign of your coming? What they're referring to, they're, they're reflecting back on Zechariah. Zechariah refers to the great king as the coming one or the great, the king who is coming. And then when the king comes, he will be the authoritative king who comes with uh, a, a desire and an intent to overthrow the enemies of God. And so when they say this thing about your coming, they don't, it's not that they're conflicted about the fact he's standing there right now. Is they're asking him, when are you going to get on with destroying God's enemies? When are you going to get on with kicking the Romans out? When are you going to get on with all that stuff? So if you jump to Acts chapter 1, after Jesus' death and resurrection, they say to him, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? So again, they're asking, are you going to do the stuff that the prophets say is the Messiah being this conquering king? 
And Jesus says, it's not up to you to know the times and seasons. God has those things. So we have to let him know that all of his plans are coming to fruition. So it's this constant idea of overthrowing God's enemies, of conquering that which is evil, of casting out the darkness and bringing in a kingdom of light. These are the things that are readily repeated in the minds of the disciples and the apostles, and it comes out in the text. Jesus' response at this stage is, see that no one leads you astray. Take heed that no man deceives you. So he begins his explanation of the signs of the end times with saying, don't be deceived. That's important. So when the Bible begins an important section, it often will highlight the main thing you should have in mind at the start of it. It's like a headline. It's like, this is what you need to bear in mind as you read the whole rest of this. Everything I say after this needs to be tempered by what is said here at the beginning. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's prefacing everything he's going to say about political events, about ecological events, about environmental events, about uh, uh, military, about health care, about uh, all these things he's going to preface by saying, don't be deceived. This is his number one warning. And then he says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So this is his opening line. Hey, tell us, when are these, when's the temple going to be destroyed? What are going to be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? So the end of the age, let's just backtrack slightly. To the Jewish mind, there were two ages. There was the age of man and then the age of the Messiah. And so they recognized that God gave dominion over the human race through Adam and that it was their responsibility to have dominion over the earth and to be stewards of the earth until the time of the coming of the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, it will then issue issue the age of the Messiah. So there's the age of man and the age of the Messiah. God created for six days. He rested on the seventh day. There's this sort of distinct uh, um, difference between the two. And so in the Old Covenant thought, in the, in, the, in the Torah, you've got these different festivals. And one of the final festival is the Festival of Tabernacles. And that was sort of understood as the, the time of the Messiah. So the Feast of Tabernacles was an eight-day feast. And so the number eight has this idea of a new beginning. It's the start of a new week. It's the beginning of a new cycle. And so eight was about new beginnings. And so the Messiah coming was a new beginning. It was everything was going to be made fresh and revitalized. And so they're asking about the end of the age, what's going to happen as the end of this age takes place and the start of the next age comes. And Jesus says, don't be deceived. People are going to come. They're going to claim to be the Christ. They're going to claim to be anointed. They're going to claim to be the Savior. They're going to claim to be the one who can solve the problems and bring about um, a utopia. You know what's funny about the word utopia? Is it literally means no such place. (laughs) 
<laughs> so when we talk about a utopia, we get this idea from Thomas More's book back in the day where he writes about this land of no selfishness and everybody's happy and everyone's productive. But the word itself means is there's no such place. Now, there will be such a place when Jesus comes back and reshapes everything into the way he intends it to be and eradicates the nature of sin in every person who who seeks to be associated and identified with him. Uh, but right now, there's no such place. And you can't have it. And it's interesting when you listen to testimonies of people who have come out of North Korea. And one of the things that they'll say is that they were told for their entire life, that North Korea is the greatest nation on earth, that it is way better off than every other nation on earth, and that the everyone who lives there is blessed to be part of North Korea and be under the leadership of their dear leader. And I remember reading about this one lady who escaped from North Korea, and she survived the famines of the 90s. And so if you ever want to read sad, sad stories, look up the history of the famines that took place in the mid to late 90s in North Korea, and it's sad, sad reading. But she said they were told on a regular basis that they were on the greatest nation on earth and that they were blessed to be under their great dear leader. And the lady actually said, we were stripping bark off of trees to eat because there was no food anywhere else. And I thought to myself, man, I'm glad I live here because it must be really bad in other countries if we're left to be stripping bark off of trees to eat. And so that, that mindset is so deceptive and so degrading that they would be stripping bark off trees for something to eat in a terrible famine where people were dying every day and still saying to themselves, wow, isn't it great that we live in this marvelous country? Everyone else must be just really bad off. So that's the kind of perverted mindset that comes from this idea of um, what Jesus is warning about. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So he says here, see, this is the English Standard Version. In the New King James, it says, take heed. It's a bit stronger. The word in Greek actually has a variety of meanings that are all very insightful, but they go from just seeing, like it's translated here, down to have a perception that you understand. It's a very... um, it's a very deep word that can be used to mean to have discernment, to take heed, to be aware of, to, be, uh, to take regard unto, uh, to, get, to get an understanding through uh, discernment, through observation, through um, a deeper perception of things around you. So the word see is just scratching the surface here, really, with the English Standard Version. It's much deeper than that. Take heed is a little bit stronger, but even so, it's not, you have to sort of understand the full scope of what this word could mean. And so, the idea of seeing, or taking heed, but mainly seeing, it, the, the only way you can see anything is if the light is on, if the sun is shining, if you flip the switch, so that the the lamps come on. That's the only way that you can see. If there's no sun and there's no lamps, then you're in the dark. And if you're in the dark, you can't see. And so you don't have any conception of what's going on. I've taken tours of caves. And so, you know, you go down into the cave 
and they'll gather you into this room and they'll talk about, oh, the crystals in the walls and oh, this thing here and that thing here. And it's like, now let me show you what it was like when they first began to explore these caves and they'll flip the lights off. And you're standing there with 50 people in the absolute pitch dark because you're 50 feet underground or whatever it is. And inevitably, I've been in a couple caves where they've done this, and there's, there's always some lady in there that after about, they literally keep the lights off for about 10 seconds. It's not very long because they know that somebody is going to start to hyperventilate. Somebody is going to start going, ah, I can't cope with this intense darkness. They'll flip the lights back on. And, and that's what happens. And you'll usually have some lady that'll be like, oh, oh, and she starts breathing a little bit better once the lights come on. But that's what happens when you are in the dark. So seeing requires light. Who is the light of the world? Jesus is the light of the world. But also, he says that we are the light. The church is the light. We're a city set on a hill, he says. He says, don't hide your light. And so it's part of our job and part of why I even do these podcasts is to try to provoke people and help people to see because the, we have to be in the light. You have to be walking with the Lord. What does it say in 1 John? Uh, we need to be walking in the light as he is in the light. The Lord Jesus ultimately is our light. If we're in Christ and Christ is in us, then a light should be shining out of us and we should be helping people to perceive, to see, to understand, to have a knowledge of the situation in the world around us. We should be bigger and better than what's going on around us. Not giving in to moaning and whining and complaining. We're supposed to be giving in to uh, whatever the Lord is dumping into us that comes from his spirit, which is a huge another subject to discuss. Look at all my other podcasts for things like that. Mindset and stuff. So the only way that you can see, that you can take heed, that you can perceive as if you are in the light, the only way to be in the light is to be in the word of God and ask the Lord to reveal his mind to you on a regular basis. Because for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And so this idea of deception, of going off the path, of ending up in darkness, of getting away from the light, and then things get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, and before you know it, you just, you're not even close to what it says. You may be using the right words, and here's the problem. Notice that Jesus says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. It's irrelevant the words you use. What do you mean by those words? This is the key to deception. The devil will say the same things, the same words that the Bible says. He'll say God. He'll say Jesus. He'll say Christ. He'll say love. He'll say anything along those lines, mainly about Jesus. And he will distort what it is that Jesus actually is who he is and he'll distort that and get you off the only way to stay correct is by always being submersed into the word of god to have the light of god in you and so you're walking in that light and then that light allows you to see so this is the first point that jesus makes about the signs of the times before his coming is he says uh see that no one leads you astray. See that you are not deceived. That's the first point he makes. So this is your challenge. I would suggest that you read Matthew 24 every day for three times a day 
every day for the next week and look at the world around you and the headlines and see what it is that Jesus is talking about because Jesus is coming back and we're going to focus a bit more on these kind of things to try to encourage us to be aware and to be prayerful. So your action is to be prayerful like Daniel in chapter 9. Pray like Habakkuk in chapter 3 of Habakkuk. Be responsive to what is said primarily through prayer and then ultimately also by living your life out for the Lord. So God bless you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with somebody that you know. Uh, I'm going to include links at the end of this for mailing list and for our online course on understanding how to interpret the Bible. God bless you and keep walking with him. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you were challenged and encouraged by what you heard today, please feel free to share it with any friends or family you like. You're welcome to email us at calebtheelectrician at gmail.com. That's calebtheelectrician at gmail.com. And remember to leave a comment at iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts.